Welcome to the C3 Church Coffs Harbour podcast. We're glad you're here. We pray that you'll be blessed and encouraged by this week's message. So, anyway, I could stay there forever. I've always wanted to ask. This is a series that we are, we are well and truly in the thick of. Um, over the last month or so, um, everybody has been, most people have been submitting in questions and there's cards over there at the Next Steps table that say, I've always wanted to ask, and then a blank space where you could ask that question, any burning questions that you have um, about life, about the Bible, about church, about whatever. Um, I will say, like I said last week, this is not a chance to, let's debate the pastor, let's, let's no, 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 because I just want to answer those questions, so that's fine. I have the power to do that. But um, what we wanted to do is, is really just open up the forum to to, to find out, are there any little um, corners of your life and your thinking where it's like, I've just, I don't know the answer to that. What do, you, what do you think about this? And so we've been doing that over the last few weeks, and it's been really interesting. We have covered a, a plethora of topics from everything from... Um, what does the Bible say about abortion? What is the structure of our church? Tattoos? How do we know God's voice from all the other thousands of voices in our head? Um, how has technology affected spirituality? Um, all sorts of things. What was? Can someone lose their salvation? Why is there suffering in the world? All these sorts of things. It's been um, really, really interesting to, to hear these questions and to be able to study them out and, and, and unpackage them from a biblical perspective. Um, and, and from the feedback we've been receiving, it's been really, really helpful. If you have missed a, a message, you can go back and listen on our podcast, either on iTunes or Spotify or via our website. Um, they are available to listen to and download. But this morning we're going to get into a few more And uh, there's a bunch here that I'm probably just going to whiz through because I really want to get to the back end of the questions. Uh, There's a a last portion. We'll get to that in a moment. But I just really want to spend a bit more time on because I think that's going to be really helpful for us this morning. But before we do that, I would love to pray um, just simply so that I can pray myself out of the way and pray God into uh, this situation. So God, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for every single person that is here today, Lord. What a, what a privilege, what an honor, what a treat it is to be able to share your word with all of us here today. So I pray that, Lord, I would truly get out of the way, that you would flow through me, that you would uh, just use me as a conduit for your truth, God. And we pray that you would just have something for every single person here today to help us to think more clearly about who you are and who we are in light of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. First question today we're looking at is, how would you define eternity? How would, I guess, how would I define eternity? And simply, I could say that, well, eternity is time forever that way and time forever that way. There you go. There's eternity. Just limitless amounts of time. And that would be true, but I think that's probably not a helpful answer. But uh, what, what, what is interesting in my research of this, when we look at how eternity is described, um, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how Jesus talks about eternity, how the disciples talk about eternity, what we see is, is the emphasis is not necessarily on the quantity of time that eternity is, but the quality of time that eternity is. That eternity, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are a son or a daughter of God, eternity is a place where we will spend an infinite amount of time in fellowship with God. And that sounds really Christian and really like boring, 
But when you realize who God is and what God has and that heaven is paradise and, and, and that the New Testament is talking more about the quality of time than the quantity of time, that makes eternity a much more desirable thing for us to grasp. And, and also the flip side of that too, that if, if eternity with God is something that is to be enjoyed and paradise, then eternity away from God will be the opposite of that. It will be torment, torture and pain, which makes our life here on this earth so much more important to understand that it is here that we make the critical decision about where we spend there forever. And so we might waste our time here on earth doing things for the flesh, things for our own personal pleasure, our own desire. But at the end of the day, our life here on earth is to determine the life that is to come when this life passes. And for me, I want to make sure that I am living with God forever with him because the quality of life that is to come is far greater than the current sufferings and limitations we have here on this earth. So there's a snapshot for eternity. hope that helps somebody this morning. Um, are there levels of sin? Is the next question. Does, uh, is adultery greater than murder because adultery breaks a covenant between husband, wife, and God? Great question. Um, is there levels of sin? It's so tricky. All sin is offensive to God because God is holy God is righteous, God is perfect. Sin is the opposite. Sin is an intentional, uh, or sometimes unintentional, breaking of God's law or rebellion against his holiness and his perfection. Therefore, all sin is offensive to God. However, not all sin is equal in its consequences or its origins. So some sins, as we know, have far greater consequences than others. If someone was to steal a loaf of bread... The consequences for that are quite minimal, although it's still sin. We don't believe that, that stealing is good. As opposed to the genocide of millions of people, the consequences of that are catastrophic. And therefore, even though all sin is offensive, not all sin is equal in its consequences or its intentions or motivations. So it comes down to uh, positions of the heart. Um, what I would say, if, if we have a mentality of... A, a, a spectrum of sin, we have to be careful because what we will do is we will measure our low-level sins against somebody's high-level sins and become comfortable with this as if it's okay. That's a danger because we're going to be held to account by of, held to account for our sins, not our comparative sin to somebody else's bigger sins. So that's what I would say is that all sin is offensive to God. Um, there are different consequences both uh, here on this earth and the life that is to come. But we have to deal with our sin and be quick to repent, quick to turn away, quick to ask God for forgiveness. And the thing is, when we ask for forgiveness, it is instantaneous. The only time forgiveness is really slow and lagging and hard to experience is when humans are involved. We are the ones that lag. We are the ones that delay in issuing forgiveness. We are the ones that lag in receiving forgiveness. We hold on to things far longer than we should, but God throws it away as soon as repentance happens and forgets it no more. So um, we could learn from that, I suppose. Next question. I am flying through these because I want to get to the last bit. Um, is there a sin that would stop somebody from having a leadership role in the church? Yes. In fact, there are several sins that would prevent someone from leading in the church. Um, so what I thought I'd do is, is just highlight a few of the, the qualifying factors that the Bible gives us. 
And then we can sort of draw the line between, okay, if that's what qualifies a leader, then the, the, the breaching of that qualification would therefore warrant disqualification, and we can get a, a grasp on what those things might be. So the obvious one is that we all would uh, look at is, is sexual morality, um, marital Faithfulness, that is a qualification of leadership. Someone who is faithful to their spouse, someone who is not promiscuous. Uh, therefore, if you violate that and you are sexually promiscuous or you are living in adultery, then that sin would disqualify you from leading the church. And that's an obvious one. Uh, a good manager of their household, that's a qualifying factor in the Bible. That you must manage your own home well. Therefore, if someone is undisciplined and their household completely is out of whack and doesn't display any evidence of godly order, it may warrant their disqualification from ministry. This is rare and is an extreme case, and obviously it's really hard to measure and be done on a case-by-case basis based on the board or the structure of the church, how it is. But if someone's life is completely out of whack and does not display any order, it could potentially lead to that. Um, Humility and gentleness is a qualification for a leader. That's pretty hectic. Therefore, if someone is consistently arrogant, proud, unteachable, treats people harshly, then they could potentially be disqualified from leadership. If you can't be an adequate ambassador of Christ and reflect his values and behaviours, then you can't lead effectively in the church. Hospitable. This sounds so crazy, isn't it? Like, Really? Hospitality? Yeah. Hospitality is a qualification for a leader in the New Testament scriptures. Therefore, if a leader shuts people out, isn't friendly, is never generous, doesn't open up their home or welcome people, or is consistently exclusive in their interactions with people that result in the neglect of those under their care, this may disqualify them from a leadership position in the church. Interesting. Self-control is a qualification for a leader. Therefore, if someone lives a life with very little evidence of self-discipline and doesn't control the thing the Bible teaches us to have control over, such as our tongues, our appetites, or our behaviours or thoughts, then they may be disqualified from leadership in the church. Again, this is quite extreme and it's case-by-case basis and it's hard to really get a, a measure on, but it's, it's there. And, and look, this list is by no means exhaustive. This is just a snapshot of a handful um, because people just hone in on, oh, it's the sexual thing. Absolutely, but there's so much other things that a leader must be living above reproach in in order to be the representative that God has for that particular congregation. And the last thing is able to teach. That's a qualification for a leader. So if someone is not familiar with the scriptures, unable to correctly interpret them with proper biblical integrity so that the word becomes clear for others, then they may be disqualified from leading in the church. After all, the Bible is God's word and needs to be handled correctly as it is the basis of all Christian doctrine and theology and teachers of this word will be held doubly accountable when judgment comes. So therefore... Must be a good teacher. A follow-up question is, can somebody who has been disqualified be redeemed and requalified back into ministry? This is a really tricky question that has so many moving parts. It's not funny. If I was backed into a corner and, and had to make a yes or no decision, I would say yes, 
a leader is able to be restored back to ministry again, um, but it is not a, a light and easy yes. It is a let's take a bunch of things into consideration yes. Let's read the scripture and let's see uh, the impact and influence that that particular disqualification has had and therefore what are the remedies that we need to put in place to make sure that repentance is true and there is evidence and fruit of repentance, not just a lip service to God, but there is a life service to, to living a life uh, that, that looks and smells and and, and, and tastes like repentance, then we can look at the restoration process. But I think um, we see in Scripture time and time again that, you know, Paul was a, a, a Christian murderer and he would imprison Christians and try to silence the church. But God redeemed him in his sin and gave him ministry. I see Peter, when you read Matthew chapter 6 and it talks about how if you deny me with your mouth, if you, uh, then I will deny you before the Father. What does Peter do? Peter denies Christ three times. So that's a disqualifying factor for leadership. But then at the very end of the Gospels, we read Jesus saying, what to Peter? Hey, go feed my sheep. Go feed my sheep. He forgave him. He restored him. He gave him an opportunity for redemption. Um, so yes, I think that somebody can be restored back to ministry again. And this is where I want to land, the last question, which is actually a 47-part question. Um, this is interesting. This, this question um, was given to me a couple of weeks ago, and this person um, submitted the results of a survey that they were made privy to, where 5,000 Christians were surveyed, uh, and the idea of the survey was their concept of God. And so these 5,000 Christians represented 70 different denominations. So we've got a wide gamut, a wide spectrum of Christians from super conservative traditional Christians all the way through to progressive liberal Christians and, and all the, the colors of the rainbow in between. And, and so you're getting, a, I would assume, a, a, a broader, wide snapshot of different theological views and doctrinal standpoints. But, but the questions nonetheless were centered around uh, what was their individual concept of God. And so here I've just got a few of the results um, of the most common answers to these questions that were given. So this, there's a few here that really scare me. So I've written a little response to each one of these results um, because chances are, in a scale, a survey scale that large, if these results are accurate, then perhaps some of us um, would have similar answers to these because these are the most popular. So question one, when I think about God, so when I think about being with God, I feel, this is a question, the most common Result response to this question, when I think about God being with God, I feel the most common answer was distant and alone. It's interesting. When I think about being with God, I feel distant and alone. My initial response is, well, this is a lie. Because Matthew 28, 20 says that I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a promise that we have from Jesus. So maybe our understanding of how he is with us or what him being with us actually feels like needs to shift. His word is an ever-present access point to him. His spirit is always with us. Faith gives us access to him, not our feelings. So my response would be maybe our perception of how we, need, how we, how we should feel when God is near needs to shift to know that it's not about how we feel with, with the 
makes God near, but it's our faith in him that gives us the assurance that he is with us because he says he's with us. And his word is an ever-present access point to him. We can never say that God is silent if this book is open in our world. If this book is closed, then yes, you could say that God is silent in your world because we're not putting ourselves to a place where his voice is speaking to us. So that's really sad, so hopefully that's helpful. Question two was, was asked, when I, have, when I have to trust God, I feel, and the most common answer is, I feel he will make me do something I don't want to do. My response, he very well might. <laughs> Lean into it, because this is how we grow. He will never give us anything more than we can handle. And his word says to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge and trust him. So he might very well give us more than we can handle or, or make us or ask us or require us to do something. We, I never wanted to be a pastor. That's a true story. It might come as a shock to some people. But God asked me and knew it would grow me and knew it would, would shape my destiny. So I said yes. I had to lean into it. I had to come to terms with it. I had, to, I had to adjust my priorities and my view on life and say yes to his call, even though it wasn't something I wanted to do or desired to do, because it's in those moments we grow. We do not grow in our comfort zone where God is in our box doing what we want him to do for us because of our plans. We've got to get out of our box, get into his box, which is infinite, and just say yes. That's what trusting God looks like. We can't trust God if he's limited to our Restrictions we put around him. That's not trust. That's just him obeying what we want and our preferences. Trusting God happens when we get out of our comfort zone into his expansion zone and just rely on him. When I think about God, I wish. Top answer? I feel like I'm on like family food. As survey says, we've surveyed the top 5,000 people across 70 denominations. When I think about God, I wish. Top answer is... He would talk to me. Hmm. He will, and he does. But again, I think we've got to shift our paradigm of how we think that happens. Maybe we're expecting it in a way, and because it's not happening in this way, it's happening all over, all over here. Like, for me, like the sun rises, God's talking to me. Lightning strikes in the sky, God's talking to me. Usually convicting me of sin and stuff like that, because... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But just the grandeur of nature speaks the glory of God. But if we have a limited view of how God speaks to us, then we're never going to hear him in those areas because we're thinking of God only in this parameter. So perhaps our paradigm needs to be shifted a little bit. He is alive. His word is alive. He's speaking to us constantly. Sometimes I get angry with God when, top answer, he doesn't answer me it's okay I would say that's fair Um, firstly I would say it's okay to get angry if you're constantly praying and God's not responding but I would check your heart first to see is my request selfish and unreasonable Am I genuinely a child seeking help of my father or am I a spoilt brat demanding something that I don't really need but I want so that God just meets my preferences? 
Once you determine which one that is, then the next point would be, well, just be careful how you respond in that frustration and anger. That we don't get to a place where we um, are disrespectful to God, dishonoring to God. It's like Job was angry, Job was frustrated, man, and rightly so. But, but it's in that feeling, it's in that emotion that determines whether we are going to uh, grow or whether we're going to shrink. It's, it's, and it's how we, how we uh, revere and honor God in those moments where it feels like God is silent, when we desperately need Him. If it's a genuine need, if it's a genuine thing, and God is for some reason silent and, and seems distant, how we respond to that frustration or anger really, really matters. Number five, it frustrates me when God wants me to do things that I can't do. Similar to the previous question before, but I would say just get used to it. God will often take us out of our comfort zones in order to grow us and teach us to rely on Him more than we rely on our own abilities. God's plan is not to leave you as you are, but to grow you and prune you so that you might bear much fruit. And unfortunately, that process is painful. And unfortunately, that process takes us to a place of doing things we don't want to do. But it is all for our benefit, all for our growth, all for our maturity, which ultimately, if we are bearing much fruit, then actually we are changing the world, impacting the world. Because the fruit we bear is not necessarily just for us. An orange tree is not healthier because it has fruit on its branches. Once it develops that fruit, the fruit is just evidence that it is already healthy. The fruit itself does not re-nourish the tree. But what it does is it brings life and nourishment to those who eat that tree. And it has the seeds of potential life in it so it can plant another tree and be fruitful elsewhere. The fruit is simply evidence of the health that already exists in its stuff. (laughs) Running out of words. I really enjoy God when he is there to help me. Brilliant. That is a brilliant thing to be to be doing. And so you should. But I beg you not to let this be the fullness of your enjoyment of God. Learn to enjoy him when he feels silent. Learn to enjoy him when you are in the midst of your storm. I think it's, it's you know, I still love my wife even when we fight. Even when we are seeing things differently. Even when there is a distance between us. My love for her, my affection for her, my desire for her does not change, even though circumstances around that might be volatile, there could be a storm. It would be, such a sh- it would be so shallow of me if my love for her was determined purely on whether things were good and things were fun and things were awesome. But I think life is up and down, it's a roller coaster, and I think you know, we need to enjoy God, not just in the good times, but learn to enjoy Him when things aren't going so good. Oh, gosh. The one thing I would change about myself to please God, top answer, have a guess. One thing I would change about myself to please God. Okay, don't guess. I'll tell you. (laughs) Top answer, everything. The most response was people said, I need to change everything in order to please God. What kind of lives are these people living? Seriously. So, first of all, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You can do nothing that will make God love you more. Be comfortable in who God created you to be, knowing full well that you are not 
a mistake. Allow the Holy Spirit to identify growth and discipleship areas, but don't think that this is equal to you not being good enough. This is the sanctification process of God at work in you. We've got to remember that while we were still enemies of God, Jesus died for for us, and the only reason he did was to demonstrate how much he loves us. So we don't have to get ourselves perfect. We don't have to make ourselves awesome, whatever that looks like, whatever our gauge of a measure of awesome is, because while we were enemies of God, Christ still died for us because he loves us and wanted to show us how much he did. That should change everything. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean we are now perfect. There are still areas and, 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 and attitudes and thinking processes that we have that are imperfect that the Holy Spirit will touch from time to time to say, hey, listen, probably should work on this. This would be a good area in the sanctification process. You're already made righteous. You're already justified by what Jesus has done. But now there is a process of discipleship, a process of, of maturation or maturing that you need to do. And so here's a couple of little things I reckon we could work on together to help you. I still love you. I still accept you just as you are. You are good. You're okay. But let's work on a couple of these minor things as we grow from glory to glory and become more like Christ in who we are. Change everything. Man, that's sad. Sometimes I wish God would, top answer, get me out of this mess and take me home. Christians. Surveys on the concept of God. That's why I wanted to spend some time on this because I wanted to, that was my my one goal for today was to help us get a right concept of God. Because according to this survey, a lot of people have a wrong concept of God that is not scriptural and, and not helpful. Sometimes I wish God would get me out of this mess and take me home. Take comfort in the fact that the Apostle Paul has been in this exact same place. We read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 to 26, he says, um, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be honest, I kind of wish, I'm paraphrasing, um, I kind of wish that I would just be taken away from all this because honestly life is just too hard. There is too many demands. There is too much persecution. Life just sucks right now. And for me to go and be with you is going to be so much better because I'd be in paradise. I'd be in that place of eternity where the quality of life is absolute paradise and perfection. And right now it is far from that. However, he comes to terms with the fact that there is still work on this earth to be done. And even though he himself is not encountering paradise on this earth, that doesn't disqualify him or change the fact that God has a plan for him and that plan might be to actually help other people. In fact, that is the plan, that we would help other people, even though we ourselves don't have the full help that we might think we need in the moment right now. And that's what Paul went through. So he he got that. That was his heart. Oh God, my life's a mess. Take me home. Yeah, that's all I've got to say about that. In my relationship with God, I am always sure that he will get me, make me pay, or expose who I really am to others. Wow. Um, That's awful that people would think this way. Romans 2.4 has been probably one of the major passages God's been speaking to me about all throughout the year, which says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness that woos us into a relationship with him, that that draws us in, that attracts us to God because he is kind. 
the Bible also says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, all these things, which therefore, if they are fruit of the Spirit, and God is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that they are evidence of who God is. And so this kindness is who God is, and it's His kindness that draws us into a relationship with Him. So to think that God will get me, God will make me pay, that God's going to expose me to others, just flies in the face of the very nature of who He is as a kind, gentle, loving God. And he would not want to draw us in because we're afraid that he's going to expose us for who we really are, that he's going to try and smite us, and so therefore, no. Which sort of leads into the next question, which is the one thing that frightens me about God is his judgment. Fair enough. It should. Absolutely it should. God's judgment should frighten all of us. And I... Don't apologize for saying that. Um, Because Proverbs 1 verse 7 says this, it's the fear of God. The fear of his righteous judgment is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. Because of our own volition, we fall short of the the glory of God. And we will encounter God's judgment. And we should be afraid of that. But because of what Christ has done, by faith, we now have full righteousness with God, right standing with God. So the, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but we don't stay there. We move from fear into freedom, into enjoying all that God has for us as his children, and as a co-heirs with Christ, with the promise that there is a life that is to come that is far better than this life here on this earth, and we get to live that with a God who loves us. It might start with fear. The beginning of wisdom is fear, but it moves into freedom and flourishing and fullness of life that we have when we abide with Christ as his children and as a co-heir of inheritance we have in heaven awaiting us. That's, that's why it's good news. That's why the gospel is good news. Last question. The one thing I'm afraid God will do. Most popular answer, right? Most popular answer. The one thing I'm afraid God will do is take one of my children to get my attention. To be honest, I'd be lying if I said I'd never had those thoughts. I do. Anna and I talk about it from time to time that these thoughts will come into our head like, don't let them go to that excursion. They're not going to come back. And I'm going I'm, I'm to take your daughter, I'm going to take your son and, 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 and then start to play these scenarios about what life will be like with them deleted from our life. And all it creates inside of me is pain, torment, the exact opposite of what God actually has for me. They're perversive and tormenting thoughts, which is why we have to take all of our thoughts captive and surrender them to Christ. Christ is truth. He is ultimate truth. And these pervasive thoughts are lies. So we need to take these thoughts, surrender them to the truth, and say, no, no, this is the standard by which I, I, I live my life. This is the truth by which I will follow. And I'm going to take this thing and surrender it and let Jesus heal me of those things so I can think the thoughts that he has for me and thoughts that are actually helpful for me, not thoughts that are going to trap me. And I remember passages like Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil, and comparing ourselves to God, we are. He is perfect and righteous, therefore by... Um, 
hyperbole comparison, we are evil. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? So that always reminds me that I love my kids, I'll do anything for my kids, I will serve my kids, I will create opportunity for my kids, I will give them the best life I possibly know how to give, I will help them avoid any of the the, the things that I encountered as a child so they can live a freer life than I lived. But even as, as great as I think I might be doing with parenting, I am a failure compared to how good God is at leading me as his child. So that reminds me that if God has a a best plan for me, then I can be free from those pervasive thoughts that are trying to cripple me and and, and keep me down because my God is a good Father who has the best intentions for me and I'm going to live by faith and not by fear. In short, I would say to this collective group of people, and some of us might fall into some of these categories or some of these thinking patterns, to know Scripture, this thing, this book, To know this is to know God. The Bible is the primary way, not the exclusive way, but the primary way, one of the major ways that God reveals himself to us, his nature and his plan. We do ourselves a great disservice living off secondhand information and secondhand revelation. We must dig deep into scripture for ourselves and discover who God is for ourselves as his children. God doesn't have grandkids. We will not piggyback on anybody else's faith into heaven because we will all stand alone by ourselves before him one day and be held to account for the life we live. We cannot hide behind or in the shadows of somebody else's faithfulness or somebody else's understanding of scripture or somebody else's uh, life of discipleship. When judgment, We might be able to get away with it in this life. We might be able to quote all the, the, the preachers we like online, but we, we have an awareness of God, but not a relationship with God. But all that will be exposed when we stand before God alone. But we have the, the fullness of assurance to know that if we have faith in him, it's going to be all good. If we have faith in Jesus, no matter how crappy life is here, if we just hold on to him, then we will hear those words resounding for all eternity, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what every child of God can expect to hear. And that's, I don't think there's any sweeter sound in, in ever that we could hear than God's approval and God's acknowledgement of, of us. As I close, a great place to start is where we talked about last week. The question was asked, how would you describe love? What does love look like practically? And so we use the example of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, where we substitute out every place that uh, it talks about or refers to love and the qualities of love with our name so that we get a benchmark of how we are going in regards to outworking love to those around us. That same principle, that same exercise is really important to do for us to understand who God is and the nature of God so that we get a correct perspective and concept of God in our life. Because the Bible says that God is love, so then what does this love, what does this God look like when it's uh, manifested or outworked in reality. Well, let's do this exercise. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy, nor does he boast. God is not arrogant. God is not rude. Doesn't insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at our wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. 
God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. God is good. Thanks for tuning in to the C3CH podcast. We trust this week's message inspired and encouraged you. We hope to see you in one of our services soon. For more information on C3 Church Coffs Harbour, visit www.c3ch.com.